Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I mean, I'm in this band with these guys. They're famous for their beards. And I promise you, I could beat them in a beard growing contest, hands down, if I wanted to, but I don't because I don't like having facial hair. Now, I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. They have a shave gel that smells really, really nice. My wife loves it. But what I love about the razor blade, in addition to those things, that it's a weighted handle. I love a weighted handle. Guys, if you uh, shave with a razor, if you don't do the electric razor thing, if you're like me, you like it old school, a nice weighted handle feels really good and it helps you get the best shave you can. Another thing that's great about Harry's is they ship the razor blades right to your door. So I think it comes out to like $2 a blade. It's really affordable. They bought their own German blade making factory. They keep costs down, but yet high quality. All purchases are 100% quality guarantee. If you don't like your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund. 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com slash politics to start shaving better today. This week, we zoom in on a subject I've been thinking about a lot as I follow the news during lockdown, voting by mail. Even before COVID-19, we were likely to see an increase in absentee ballots in November, following recent trends. But after Wisconsin held their primary amidst the health crisis and social distancing restrictions, the whole country got to see the risks of a massive uptick in absentee voting across all 50 states, all of which administer their own elections differently. How can states use the six months between now and Election Day to find common ground and avoid judicial fights that erode voters' confidence in our elections and, worst-case scenario, don't provide a conclusive and accepted result? And if you vote by mail in November, what should you know to make sure your vote is counted appropriately? I dig into these questions with two guests who offer a few important questions of their own. The first is Professor Ned Foley constitutional law professor at Ohio State and author, most recently of the book, Presidential Elections and Majority Rule. An expert on election law, Ned also wrote an opinion piece in Politico last week called Why Vote by Mail Could Be a Legal Nightmare in November, which I encourage you to check out via the link in our show notes. Next, I speak with New York Times reporter Nick Corsiniti, 
co-author of a great piece in the Times titled Why Republicans Are So Afraid of Vote by Mail, which you can also find in the show notes. Nick has been covering the fallout from Wisconsin's disastrous primary and what lessons we can learn to ensure the greatest voting access as possible during this unprecedented election year. Please check out Nick's ongoing coverage of the story. The stakes are too high not to. I hope you're all staying safe, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Ned Foley, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Great to be with you. Ned, we're excited to have you here today because you had an opinion article last week in Politico, why vote by mail could be a legal nightmare in November. I was hoping that you could first maybe walk us through some of the history of absentee balloting and where legal challenges have come up in the past. I'd be happy to do that. First, I'd like to say that for this year's election, we're going to need more absentee ballots than we've had in the past. Uh, We just have to be ready for it. And we have to be cognizant of the risks that they have. So my point is not to try to get rid of vote by mail or to reduce it. It's to be well prepared. And being well prepared means recognizing the vulnerabilities that they do have and the disputes that they have caused. So if you go back into the history of litigation over election results, and those are the the fiercest fights. We we do fight over the voting process ahead of time. Uh, We're seeing some of that now this year, getting ready for November. But the fiercest fights, like Bush versus Gore, for example, in 2000, is when you've got a very close result and both sides think they win or want to win, and they think that there's some problem that they can fight over. And it turns out that absentee ballots are the rocket fuel for those kind of fights. They're just more of these fights are over absentee ballots than any other kinds of problems. Now, Bush versus Gore is a little bit of an exception because people remember the hanging chads. But actually, people also forget that absentee ballots were an issue in the whole Florida 2000 dispute about whether or not they were signed properly or postmarked properly. Some of your listeners may remember that Al Gore's running mate, Joe Lieberman, went on Meet the Press and kind of on his own, he went rogue and said, oh, we're not going to challenge the absentee ballots. <laughs> and that kind of left Gore only being able to challenge those hanging chads. You know, I think the Gore campaign was hoping that they could challenge both, just making the point that you can fight over absentee ballots. And we can come back to Florida 2000 if you want to. But if you sort of put that one aside. Well, real quick, Ned, to interrupt you respectfully, I was talking to my wife last week, and this is a kind of a greater issue we're seeing. We've got the current situation with COVID-19 and this quarantine and the seemingly failure of the federal government to address an important issue. If you go back, you have Katrina, you have the intelligence before 9-11. In my mind, I trace all of this back to the 2000 election. The idea of, you know, our constitution has laid out many things. It's worked very well for a long time. But I think in here in this decade, we're beginning to see gray areas that are exasperating the rifts that already exist in our culture. And I said to my wife, hanging chads. It all goes back to hanging chads. She didn't remember hanging chads. But to me, I do believe that, you know, as a historian, when I when we look at this moment in history, maybe chapter one is the Bush-Gore election. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what Bush versus Gore taught both the politicians and their lawyers, frankly, 
is that litigation can matter in this. And so fighting over votes is a worthwhile campaign strategy, unfortunately. It's not necessarily good for the voters and the political system as a whole. All of the fighting that we've got since then over voter identification rules, I think even, I mean, we've had gerrymandering for all of American history, but the intensity of the fights over gerrymandering, for example, have accelerated since Bush versus Gore. And and so our our hyper-polarized, hyper-partisan dynamic I think does flow from hanging chads, as as you say. So we need to be ready for the possibility that this November's presidential election could be disputed if it's close enough. I mean, I was worried about that even before COVID-19. I thought there could be fights over absentee votes just because of the great alliance that we've done uh, as a country since 2000. Um, Because of the problems with those punch cards and those hang chads, we tried to improve our voting process, which is good. And we've given voters more options. Early in-person voting, where you don't go to your neighborhood polling place on election day, but you may go to a vote center for your whole county for two weeks before election day. That's, that's a good advantage. We've adopted something called provisional ballots to make sure that nobody who's wrongly removed from the registration list is turned away empty-handed. They at least get to vote a provisional ballot that then can be verified. Well, all of those reforms, well-intentioned, even before the virus, made it more likely that we would start fighting over vote tallies on election night and afterwards. And I could explain some of the technical details of that if you want. But the main point here is we were vulnerable to this kind of dispute. And COVID-19 adds to that vulnerability in many ways, as the Wisconsin election last week showed. And the greater vulnerability is in part because of the greater reliance on absentee voting, which will be necessary, imperative, but it will increase this risk of litigating over results. When I think about the recent history of absentee ballots or uh, these legal issues that take a long time to be sorted out, I think of the Norm Coleman Al Franken Senate race. Was that 2008? It was. And you got it. That was all about absentee ballots. That's a a good example. I mean, I could give you that one. I could probably rattle off four or five in the last couple of decades. Well, why don't we dig into that one a little bit as an example and to give our listeners just kind of walk them through the pitfalls and travails of when a situation like this pops up in reality. You know, it is a great example in that sense because it took eight months to resolve and so left the Senate seat vacant. Now, you can't do that in a presidential election, but it had huge consequences. And that Senate seat was crucial because the Democrats at the time had 59 seats. They were one short of a so-called filibuster-proof level of support in the Senate at a time of a financial crisis. So yes, every Senate seat matters, but that was an important one for that reason. So let's go walk back to election day, November of 2008. You know, on election night and the next morning, it looks like the incumbent Republican, Norm Coleman, has eked out a very narrow victory. He's ahead in the preliminary returns that newscasters all tell you on TV on election night. You know, it's so close, it's just 100 of votes separating them, that the lawyers, because of Bush versus Gore, they know the routine, they know the drill, they know how to fight over every last ballot. And so Franken, the Democrat, Al Franken, the comedian, he's the challenger, he's behind. And he has a prominent law firm that, including a lawyer, Mark Elias, who's become the sort of lead attorney for Democratic candidates, both because of his success in that dispute and, and other 
activity since then. Anyway, so Elias and his legal team start looking for ballots that might, because if you're behind, the funny thing is recount attorneys will tell you that what matters most in a recount is not ideology. It's not party. It's simply whether you're ahead or behind. Because if you're ahead, you want to freeze the count because you're in a good position. If you're behind, you need to find more votes because you got to move the numbers. So Franken says, wait a second, there are these absentee ballots that haven't yet been counted. They're sitting in their envelopes unopened. There are votes in there. Let's look at them. And it turns out Franken and his lawyer are right that some of those have been rejected improperly under state law. Unlike going to your neighborhood polling place where you talk to your poll worker, if they don't like your signature, you can do it again. If they can't find your address in the book, you can kind of help them out. You can resolve all your problems pretty easily and then just vote a regular ballot. It automatically gets counted. Every absentee ballot is a risk because you voted at home or you know away from the polling place. You put it in the envelope. And if the clerks, the official government clerks, don't like what's on your envelope, they won't count your vote. What do you mean by if they don't like what's on your envelope? Well, I don't mean to be flip about it. They're, they're doing their job. They're conscientious. But if they see your signature and they don't think it looks like your signature on file, they'll set it aside for a signature mismatch. And thousands of ballots in every election get set aside for that reason. That's something, again, you could have worked out fine. I mean, I've, had, I've gone to my own neighborhood polling place, signed my name quickly. The poll worker said, wait a second, that doesn't look like the signature in the book. So I just sign it more slowly, like I'm writing a check and that looked good enough. But if that's an absentee ballot, they don't give me that second chance. Same thing. It might, it might be my mistake. You know, if I'm elderly or have dyslexia, I might transpose the number of my own address or zip code innocently by mistake. But if that's a mismatch, and the clerk looks at it, it doesn't correspond to what's in the file, put aside, right? It could be the clerk's mistake and not mine. They might just misread what I've written as they type it into their computer. So in some states, around 10% of absentee ballots are never counted because of these discrepancies. You know, it's not malfeasance or nefariousness, it's just human error. But in a close election separated by a hundred votes, when you know millions of votes are cast statewide, those human errors may make a difference as to whether Coleman wins or Franken wins, and that's what's happened. You know, Al Franken's lawyers found enough of those ballots to turn it around. He was very sophisticated. They went on TV and had examples of a couple of people who, you know, had done everything right, but it was a clerical mistake on the government's part. They got a lot of public sympathy that is, hey, wait a second, we don't want disenfranchisement of innocent voters. And so everybody then, and there was about 12,000 absentee ballots that were never counted initially. And everybody in Minnesota started looking at them to see whether they should count or not count. Well, once the tables turned and Franken pulled ahead, then the litigating posture of both sides completely flipped because again, it's all about winning. So suddenly, you know, Franken's attorneys say, well, we're done. (laughs) You know, we, we found all the mistakes. We're good to go. And Norm Coleman and his attorney, a guy named Ben Ginsburg, who was one of Bush's attorneys back in Bush versus Gore, said, no, 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 no. There's still some more missing ballots out there. And they went to court to fight over them and brought equal protection challenges based on the theory of Bush versus Gore that say, wait a second, the same kind of absentee ballot, if it's been um, cast in one particular city in Minnesota, has been treated differently from the same type of ballot 
in a different city, kind of issues that were surfacing again in Wisconsin last week, because you do want equal treatment of equivalent voters. It's the same election. We have a constitutional principle of one person, one vote, which means equal voting rights for everybody. And so suddenly Minnesota spends eight months worrying about whether there is genuine equal treatment of all equivalent voters. So ultimately, Franken pulls it out. Correct. Ultimately, the Minnesota courts decide that there was equal treatment because there was a kind of a strict statute that made it clear when a ballot should count and shouldn't count. And they said that if you could demonstrate that the government was mistaken in following strict rules, then you could get an extra ballot counted and that Rankin had followed that. The main problem that surfaced was it turned out some clerks were too generous. They actually counted ballots that they shouldn't have under the strict policies at the time. But once a ballot is counted and sort of commingled with all of the ballots, you can't retrieve it. It's like a drop of uh, water in a swimming pool or in the ocean. You can't pull out a previously counted ballot. And so Norm Coleman's legal theory was to have equal treatment in that election. It meant counting more ballots that also were non-compliant but to have equality with the previous counted ballots that were non-compliant. And the Minnesota judiciary said, no, 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 we don't think equality requires breaking the rules twice, if you will. So they let the results stand, even though there were kind of ballots in there that, that shouldn't have been. You know, what was the alternative to just avoid the whole election and start all over? Ultimately, the courts kind of relied on a procedural rule that said the Coleman lawyers should have been a little bit quicker in stopping those bad ballots from getting in at the beginning. And so by the time they fell behind and tried to claim equality, it was kind of too late to rectify a problem that maybe could have been caught on election night. So if we instituted across-the-board absentee balloting, Everybody can send in a mail-in ballot if they want, which isn't going to happen. But if they did, we could have this situation in the courts in a hundred different races across the country, if not more, including the presidency. Correct. No, any, any election, whether it's for mayor or governor or senator, is vulnerable to these sorts of fights. If it's close enough, as the Coleman-Franken one shows, you know, what happened in Wisconsin last week is people expected that statewide race. It was for a a seat on the state Supreme Court. They expected it to be very close because previous Supreme Court races in Wisconsin had been very close. It turned out it wasn't close. But it wasn't close in the complete opposite direction. Correct. Correct. Election lawyers compare two numbers. The margin of victory, right? We were talking about Franken and Coleman just separated by 100 votes in the reported tallies. You compare the margin of victory with the margin of litigation. How many ballots are there that are fighting over? And what happened in Wisconsin is the margin of litigation was very high because there was horrific disenfranchisement of absentee voters that we could talk about. And that's what I'm worried about for November. So there were probably tens of thousands of problems in Wisconsin, maybe more, maybe almost, I don't know, it was got to be 100,000, but it was a very high number of contestable votes. And so given the track record of the expectation that the margin of victory would be below 10,000 because previous races had been 7,000 or 3,000 or what have you, they thought that would be one to fight over. But it turned out that the margin of victory was well outside the margin of litigation. 
But it, in November, it might be the opposite. And it could be the presidential race. You know, I'm, I'm particularly worried about Pennsylvania, for example, because they do not have a history of absentee voting there. Very little absentee voting in the past. But they have changed their law, which they should have, now allow voters to make the choice whether they want to vote by mail or in person. So they, I think they have to expect a huge volume of absentee ballot requests. But that could generate the exact same problem that occurred in, in Wisconsin, because the main problem in Wisconsin was that voters did everything they were supposed to to get their ballot. They were, they were timely in their request for a ballot. But the government was so inundated with the unexpectedly high volume that they never sent the ballots to the voters. How do you can't cast a ballot that you don't have? <laughs> Considering this, do we think that now, as um, Wisconsin being a canary in the coal mine kind of situation, that that these states will be ahead of the game getting ballots out to voters? Or is this going to be a red-blue issue? Here you have Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. They're both swing states this time around, right? I've seen a few projections where it's going to come down to Wisconsin. But we have to consider both Pennsylvania and Wisconsin battleground states Pennsylvania, they're new to this absentee balloting uh, thing, but they have a Democratic governor and their senators are split. I don't know what their state Supreme Court is. Wisconsin has a majority conservative state Supreme Court. I guess now it's four to three. How much does the makeup of the judiciary in each state determine what the outcome of a balloting legal challenge will be? Yeah, uh, it's an important question. That's what was so worrisome about or one of the elements that was so worrisome about Wisconsin was the judicial splits, because both the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court split on what looked like partisan lines. And that should make us all nervous, because we need the judiciary to be a nonpartisan umpire of a competitive process. You know, I think it's important that elections, to be fair, they need to be competitive. Both sides should be entitled to, to fight to win. There's nothing wrong with that. If we had a one-party society, it wouldn't be a robust democracy, right? People are going to have differences of opinion about how government should run. And so we should be proud of our two-party competition. But to make two-party competition work, you need good rules, a good infrastructure that is refereed by a neutral umpire. So you're a legal analyst in this situation. Uh, When you look at Wisconsin, how it was handled, and the Supreme Court's decision about voting in Wisconsin, do you look at it like they had legal standing to make the decision they made, the courts did? Or did you look at it that they just twisted it in favor of the Republican Party? I think all nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court were acting in good faith. Um, I don't have any reason to doubt that. I just think it was unfortunate that they split five to four in a partisan alignment. I think it would have been so much better if they could have figured out a way to find common ground. I actually think with hindsight, there might have been a way, but it was just too fast to see it. So I'm hoping that for November, we can improve the process so that we don't have that kind of 5-4 split. Um, But I'd like to say one thing more about Minnesota, because they actually taught us a positive lesson in that um, Coleman-Franken race. When it got to court, after some initial skirmishing that also looked ugly in their judiciary splitting, you know, three to two on party lines in a similar way to Wisconsin, they sort of said, no, 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 we got to do better for the next phase of the process. And so the Minnesota Supreme Court appointed a special three-judge panel 
They picked one Republican, one Democrat. And then because Jesse Ventura had been an independent governor of the state of Minnesota, they could pick a judge who was aligned with that independence party. Or indep- and so they, had, they called it the tripartisan panel. And what it did for the people of Minnesota was it gave them confidence that that court wasn't tilted one way or the other, that it was going to be as fair as any tribunal could be. That tribunal was unanimous in every single ruling that they made. I've had the opportunity to talk to those judges for the research that I've done historically. And what my understanding is, is that even if they were internally disagreed on some things, they wanted to have a public representation of unanimity to kind of show that they were all in it together and that it wasn't partisanship. And the good thing about that is they had the time to do it. It took them a long time, but it's when litigation moves so fast, like Wisconsin last week or Bush versus Gore, you know, those initial instincts come to the fore. Even in good faith, you get those kind of divisions. So everything that we can do to structurally avoid that kind of ugly split, I think, is a good thing to try to do. Now, we have states like, I think, Colorado, which has all mail-in balloting. Have they seen any issues since they instituted that? No, I think the states that do all mail voting have gotten to the point where they're used to it and can do it well and it works well. So it is a model that is constructive. It would be hard for a state like Pennsylvania, again, that doesn't have that history to convert to that overnight for this election. So I think we have to acknowledge that different states are in different places, culturally and and administratively. I do think every state has to be ready for the possibility that the voters will want to vote absentee just to avoid the virus at a polling place. Even if we get to the point in November where we're pretty comfortable going to the grocery store and you know we're not at home all the time, voters may still think, well, why take a risk, an unnecessary risk? Yes, I have to go to the grocery store, I have to go to Walmart, but I don't necessarily have to go to the polls if I prefer to vote absentee. So I think logistically, Pennsylvania, Michigan, other battleground states, all states have to be ready to meet consumer demand, as it were especially states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, which have converted to voter choice on this issue. It's not the government's decision anymore what type of ballot voters cast in those states. It is the voters' legal right to vote by mail in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin if they want to. Wisconsin couldn't satisfy that legal obligation. That was the breakdown. And as you correctly said, given that we've got time between now and November, we ought to be able to handle the logistics so as to avoid the problem. I still fear, though, that humans being humans, problems can happen even if you try to avoid them, and that to be fully prepared, you need a belt and suspenders approach here. You have to try to meet demand at the outset, but if Philadelphia or Detroit is facing administrative challenges in October and are not getting to their voters the ballots that those voters are entitled to, we need a backup mechanism. We can't just say, oh, well, too bad. You voters are eligible. You have a legal right to vote by mail. And sorry, we're not going to give it to you. That's unacceptable, I think. But if that happens, we're right back in front of the U.S. Supreme Court needing a new solution because the solution that Wisconsin came up with wasn't good enough. I actually think there is a solution. Congress has adopted a remedy for exactly this kind of problem for military and overseas voters. But right now, that remedy only applies, as I say, to military and overseas voters. It's something called the federal write-in absentee ballot. And I know it's a complicated term, but what that means is if you're a soldier serving overseas and you apply to your state government for your proper ballot on time, but it doesn't get to you because the mails are slow, not your fault, you can go to the internet and download this 
alternative emergency backup ballot. It's generic. It could apply to any state, any year, any election. That's why it's called a write-in ballot. And it just gives you the basic structure so that you can put in all the information you need to, your name, your address, your signature. And Congress has said that if that alternative form of ballot is cast by election day, you have some extra time to make it back to the officials and still count. Well, that remedy would have been a win-win in the U.S. Supreme Court because it would have avoided the disenfranchisement, but it also would have avoided the problem which troubled the majority because they said what the local judge in Wisconsin had done was allow votes to be cast after election day. And that's a concern, right? Looking at November, we don't want some people voting for president on November 6th and 7th when all of us are supposed to vote on November 3rd. So there's, there was a real concern on that side of the case that we should acknowledge, everyone should acknowledge. There were good points on both sides. That's why the 5-4 split was in good faith. They just were emphasizing different points and couldn't find common ground. Well, I think this federal write-in absentee ballot is a potential common ground if we use it as a model for the pandemic for voters here in the United States. I mean, I'm not saying that we have to adopt this for all elections in the future, but when you've got pandemic conditions, and if you, in November, if you have voters not getting the official ballot from their states that they're supposed to get, no fault of theirs, then isn't the best solution some kind of an emergency backup ballot that we already have a model for? Just get that emergency backup in their hands that they can vote on time. A great potential solution. I imagine that people won't all agree on it. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, there's partisanship, but, but that's the key point here is if we have goodwill as a society, if we can just overcome partisanship and recognize that the reason we hold elections is for the voters, our national creed comes from the Declaration of Independence. And it says governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. We hold elections to find out what the consent of the governed is, right? We hold elections for the voters, for the electorate. So we have to have good voting rules that work for voters. That should be our, our whole objective here. That's how we're supposed to do it. I think that's the standard we should hold ourselves to. And in the midst of pandemic, it's going to be a challenge. But to meet that standard, we're going to have to have procedures that make sure that every voter has a chance to vote, an adequate and full opportunity to vote. And that may need to be an absentee ballot for many voters. Because are we going to accept a result that is um, affected by disenfranchisement? That was my big fear of Wisconsin. Fortunately, again, you know, it was enough of a landslide that it didn't become a failure. But we need a principle that tells us when we have a valid election on the one hand, and we could say, hallelujah, the system worked, whoever won. But we also have to know if the election didn't work and it didn't produce the consent of the governed. It failed in its essential purpose. And I hope we don't have that. But we need to be able to make that judgment. And part of making that judgment is asking the question, was there adequate opportunity for eligible voters to participate? And if there isn't, do you accept a vote tally? Because just because you have a reported outcome doesn't make it valid from the standard of, does it represent the will of the voters? It's just a number. For that number to be democratically, small d, democratically true, it's gotta be authentic to what the electorate wants. And Wisconsin came very close to missing that basic principle. Thankfully, they survived. They dodged the proverbial bullet, if you will. 
But we've got to make sure November also survives and meets that American standard of popular sovereignty. We the people get to choose. So will our elections be an accurate reflection of we the people? That's what's at stake here. Well, Ned, as we move through, I think it's 200 days until the election at this point. Uh, As we get closer, I'm sure this issue is going to come up again and again. And I hope we can call on you to help us figure it out and understand it better. Oh, I'd be happy to help. I care about elections, obviously, for the sake of the voters. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about the history and, and the principles involved. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. You stay well, and we'll talk to you soon. You too. Stay healthy. Be safe. Take care. Thank you. Nick Corsonidi, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Thanks for having me. Nick, last week you shared the byline with Maggie Haberman and Jim Rutenberg at the New York Times, where you are a reporter, uh, on the article, Why Are Republicans So Afraid of Vote by Mail? Now, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. Uh, Monday, we got the results of that vote. And that vote was, uh, I guess, controversial in that the process of it, that here we are in the coronavirus, and we are being told by all our authority figures to social distance. And a polling place is somewhere where you can't social distance. So the governor of Wisconsin tried to get the, uh, I guess, the election postponed. Uh, The Republicans uh, challenged that in court all the way up to the Supreme Court. So you had a mass of people in Wisconsin who went out to vote that day. Many voted by mail-in ballot. And what were the results? Well, in a in something that I don't think any of the Democrats would have predicted, Judge Jill Karofsky won the statewide Supreme Court race, which was seen as, you know, possible bellwether for November. There was a presidential primary election between Biden and Sanders. But as we know, you know, Biden had been on a march. People were kind of waiting for Sanders to drop out. And he did, in fact, drop out the next day before results were even known. So everyone was looking at this statewide Supreme Court race because Wisconsin is the swingiest of swing states. And then you have President Trump endorsing the conservative-backed judge. Even though it's a nonpartisan Supreme Court, it's actually highly partisan. And every election, there's a Democratic-backed candidate and a Republican-backed candidate. And it was expected to be razor thin. Uh, The last in 2019, the last statewide Supreme Court election in Wisconsin was decided by 6,000 votes, which was also why you saw such urgency and such care about making sure everyone could vote because the, the Delta was so small in 2019. Now, on Monday, the Democratic-backed Judge Krosky won by 11-point margin. It was about it was over 100,000 votes, which I don't think anyone saw it coming. And we're still trying to understand exactly why that was. Now, the Democrats three weeks ago switched to basically an organizing model that wholly focused on getting absentee ballots in the hands of voters and guiding them through the process that can be kind of complicated in Wisconsin. Some of their volunteers were even hopping on one-on-one FaceTime calls. I wrote about that this morning where, you know, normally you'd be door knocking, you'd be making sure they voted. This time they're hopping on FaceTime and helping perhaps some of their less tech savvy voters navigate the online request system. So they switched to all online. There was such a big surge in absentee voting in Wisconsin. It was over 1.1 million, 1.2 million ballots actually that were sent out. And that was the main way that people were going to vote. Now, then the Republican legislature refused to change it. And we saw tens of thousands of people braving lines in Milwaukee and Green Bay of up to two hours with face masks and and gloves on, in essence, defying the stay-at-home order put in place by the governor because it wasn't safe to be outside, yet they were gathering in groups of hundreds, really, to vote. 
And it was such a such a stark image that the Wisconsin Department of Health announced the next day that they are going to begin tracing contact tracing to see how many new cases of the coronavirus uh, stem from voting on Tuesday. An absolutely unprecedented situation. And of course, the president interjects himself into this race as he tends to personalize most things that that happen in the country. And he, uh, in his daily briefings on the coronavirus, begins to say that, you know, he believes that if we institute widespread mail-in ballots, that would uh, lead to voter fraud throughout the country. But the president himself mailed in or applied for a mail-in ballot in Florida in March. And it wasn't just the president, his entire cabinet voted by mail. Now that the results are in, do the Republicans still see um, challenging mail-in balloting as a winning issue for them? Well, that kind of remains to be seen, although I don't expect them to change their tactics too much. You know, they've been open about their $10 million effort to, you know, launch a bunch of lawsuits, particularly in swing states, to make sure that, you know, some of these uh, voting methods aren't expanded. There's a, a very basic and kind of not necessarily fully true as some of our reporting shown that, you know, anytime the um, electorate expands, which if you were to expand vote by mail, in theory, turnout would go up, that that all always helps Democrats. And uh, my colleagues Reed Epstein and um, Stephanie Saul did a story that actually said, at least with regards to expanding vote by mail, that's not the case. And if we look at the counties that had the lowest rate of return of their absentee ballots, meaning that they requested them, but then they weren't received it either in time or they were never received. The percentages that are in the 50s and 60s weren't necessarily in Milwaukee or Madison where the Democratic base is. It was in the rural areas, which is where most of the Republican votes in Wisconsin are. So there was such a gap between Karofsky and Kelly that you can't really say that that was the only reason. So you're not necessarily sure that maybe the Republicans in the state view that as the reason they lost. There might have just been sheer voter anger that, you know, how dare you force us to vote like this in this pandemic? We're going to come out in force. That seems to be more what I've heard. But there is certainly a large, large part of the Republican base of voters, particularly those who are 65 and older in some of the more rural areas to really depend on vote by mail. And I think that's why you saw, you know, leading up to and on the day of the Wisconsin vote, you saw the president using his daily briefings to bash vote by mail. So all of these, uh, False thoughts that it was wrought with fraud. We've done a lot of reporting that says that voter fraud in the United States is extremely rare, period. Now, there have been a few cases where voter fraud happens within absentee ballots. It's not, you know, perfectly, nothing is perfectly secure. But voter fraud is extremely rare in in the entire country in all voting methods. But then the next day, the president took to Twitter and, and kind of cleaned it up and said, you know, absentee ballots can be okay. They're great for our senior citizens. They're great for our military realizing that if you were to take this absolutist stance to try and knock it all down, it could actually end up hurting them. And maybe that's what we saw to a degree in Wisconsin. So in the CDC, of which I guess uh, I guess Mr. Redfield is the head of the CDC, and President Trump appointed him, correct? The CDC uh, recommends extending balloting by mail to improve safety of voters from the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, we when we were doing this story, we were trying to, I was calling some doctors. There's a group in UCLA, which has been studying how to make voting safer during the pandemic. And then we were like, let's just check the CDC recommendations. And we pulled them up and they actually have like an election procedure thing. And their number one recommendation is expanding absentee and vote by mail balloting as a way to decrease crowds, which is something that, you know, the president has been, you know, basically saying, don't do that. Have you checked it today? Um, I, I actually have not checked it today. Um <laughs> 
we were focused, we did another story on the, on the Supreme Court and how conservative justices, which is a whole nother, you know, arm of this decades long kind of dismantling of, of some of the Voting Rights Act. But the second recommendation by the CDC is a real long, extensive expansion of in-person early voting, meaning that you open certain precincts and people can come cast their ballot as if it were election day, but it's not election day. And there's a lot of states that offer that. That's also something that both President Trump and some of the leadership of the RNC have pushed back against and tried to fight to contain. So we saw what played out in Wisconsin. Uh, We know there are some states that have universal vote by mail, right? I think Colorado, maybe maybe Washington or Oregon. Um, There's actually there's five. Okay, Uh, it's Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Utah, which is a Republican state, and Hawaii. Okay, so what what are some? You wrote a a great deal about what's happening in New Mexico right now in the article. Can you talk about about that a little bit? Yeah, there's an effort. uh, This is actually something that my colleague Jim Rutenberg is a little bit more familiar with. But basically, there's an effort to move the primary to all vote by mail. Basically, what was being done in Wisconsin, but there was a little bit more opposition there. The legislature was controlled by the Republicans. So the governor and, and the legislature there are trying to move their primary to an all vote by mail. And they've been met with resistance by the national, uh, by the state Republican Party, who is getting financial backing and some legal assistance from the national Republican Party to try and stop that from going to an all vote by mail primary. There's a few other states that are also aiming to do this. The reason that we focused a little bit on New Mexico is we were closely watching how that all plays out, knowing that Nevada, which is a swing state, or at least has been traditionally, is also looking to do this. New York has even spoken about it. New Jersey has spoken about it. Maryland is in the process of looking at it. Ohio is kind of caught up in a whole bunch of legal messes, so I don't exactly know where they are. But there are a lot of states that are looking for the primary, going to an all vote by mail system, you know, hasn't been challenged as aggressively as it is in New Mexico right now. So we're seeing the state Republican Party really try to push back on that. And um, it's kind of up in the air at the moment. What are some of the other uh, ballot issues that we need to keep our eyes eyes and ears open about for over the next couple months? Well, I think this battle over vote by mail will be the kind of defining issue, at least right now, as we kind of go towards November with no real end in sight at the moment of the coronavirus. And there's all sorts of kind of different issues that we've seen come up, even things that are so minute as a postmark. Um, in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court decided the night before the election. Now, Wisconsin's normal law just says that if you're doing absentee, it has to be in by 8 p.m. on election day, like in the hands of a clerk, or else it won't be counted. Now, a federal judge about eight days before the election said, Okay, given the you know extraordinary times we're living in, I'm going to grant that a week. So it has to be in the hands of the clerks by April 13th. So there was never any ruling about a postmark. Now, the Supreme Court said in their decision on Monday night before the election, so this was giving voters about four hours notice that everything had changed, that they had to be postmarked by election day. Now, that's something that you hear a lot in taxes. You know, your tax has to be postmarked by, and other states have a postmark rule, but Wisconsin never had. Now, postmark by meant that it had to be, uh, you know, stamped by the post office uh, by Tuesday. That doesn't necessarily mean that it was mailed on Tuesday, which caused a lot of concern. So, so many clerks who were receiving ballots on Wednesday that either didn't have a postmark of April 7th, which was election day, or didn't have a postmark at all, were theoretically not valid. Even though if mail lands in your office on Wednesday in Wisconsin, it was clearly mailed on Tuesday. There's no way to get 
a same day mail by 10 a.m. into a clerk's office. That's just physically impossible. But because there was a law saying it had to be postmarked by me, it had to have a stamp with a date on it. That was the only way it could be valid, even if you did everything right and you put your ballot in the mail. So we might see these really small, really tedious arguments play out over ballots that even when it's clear that they met a deadline or they were done correctly, some weird intricacy of the United States Postal Service could, you know, render thousands of ballots. And as we saw in Wisconsin, there were thousands of ballots in question. And we still don't know kind of where they came down on that. You know, that could be something that we that we have to pay attention to, um, especially because if you go to bring your, your ballot to the post office and you put it on a meter and they do the stamp that way, you don't get a postmark. So, you know, there's going to have to, voters are going to have to, I guess, study up on the uh, United States Postal Service. Uh, they want to ensure that they're, if that, ba- if that uh, battle is still going on, and ensure that their ballot count. And then, you know, senior citizens are being encouraged to not leave the House during this pandemic. So you have an issue of ballot harvesting? Yeah, ba- the ballot harvesting is kind of a term that uh, people who want to make it sound very dark use. But it, essentially, it means that your neighbors, you know, if you're not allowed to leave the House, your neighbors can come pick up your ballot as long as it's sealed and then bring it and drop it off, you know, kind of in mass. Now, there has been organizing efforts to do that, that is kind of towed some legal lines. The president tweets about it all the time and calls it ballot harvesting and says it's, you know, uh, it's where the voter fraud of absentee ballots come from, because you could either coerce someone to vote some way. You can knock on the door, see if they haven't voted, if they haven't help them fill it out. Well, wait, didn't didn't that happen here in North Carolina uh, in the ninth, I guess, the ninth district? And that was a Republican who was doing it. It was, it was. Um, and that's, that's what I was just about to say. The most notable and notorious example of ballot harvesting that, you know, brought about a truly rigged election was actually a Republican operative in North Carolina in, in 2018. So the last example we have of that, even though the president uh, seems to be alluding to it being a problem that Democrats were using, it was actually the most uh, recent and most significant example of that was in North Carolina, and it was by a Republican operative. Well, Nick, there's a lot here and a a lot that we need to keep following. I hope we can call on you again in the future if these issues pop up, as I'm sure they will. Please do. We'll We'll be following all year. All right. Thank you so much. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. Osiris Pod.